This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's Thursday, June 18th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The escaped prisoners are still on the loose. Oh, oh, I'm not talking about the New York prisoners. Matt and Sweat. Sweat Matt. Sweet Meat. Mito Sweetie. Ma Tweeta. No, the zoo animals of Tbilisi, Georgia, freed from their confines by flooding. A lion loose on the highway, a hippo roaming the streets, a bear perched above an air conditioner. And a tiger, who authorities claimed was accounted for, mauled a man to death. The tiger was subsequently shot. Now, the contrast with the New York escaped prisoners just strikes me. In the U.S., we call these two sweet meat. We call them predators. They are because they're horrible murderers. But we should be thankful that they're not really predators, that they are actually rational people, and that if they're smart, they got as far away as they could from the place where they were confined. In fact, it's their non-predatory instincts, the fact that they know that they are now the hunted, that makes the very town of Dannemora, New York, the most safe. I would say that other than murder, which is common among all primates, but other than murder, the most animalistic thing they did was attempting to flee. They also, unlike an animal would, played to the emotions of that prison worker who is now in custody for helping them. As of now, there is no reporting coming out of the Georgian capital that the actual animal's escape was facilitated when a hippo made goo-goo eyes at a needy zookeeper whose marriage was on the rocks. But I had to tell you, watch this footage. You see these pictures of flooding and just animals roaming the street. It is like freaking Narnia. Narnia. On the show today, I spiel about the 4%. And we're joined by a behavioral economist, Richard Thaler, who talks ticket scalping and book covers. But first, we don't know much about the shooter in Charleston, South Carolina. Nine parishioners in a black church were killed. But in the most widely disseminated photograph of Dylan Roof, two flags are prominent on his jacket. We will now focus in on what those flags mean. The picture widely disseminated of Dylan Roof, the suspected shooter of nine in South Carolina at a historically black church in Charleston, is chilling for its familiarity. A young man glowers, his hair is uncombed, his eyes are dead. But there on his chest is something different. His coat has two patches, two flags. They are flags of South Africa and Rhodesia. Joining me now is Ted Kay, who's a former editor of Raven, a journal of vexillology. He's the former treasurer of the North American Vexillological Association. He joins us from time to time on Vexillology Corner. Hello, Ted. 
Glad to be with you. Now, obviously, let's acknowledge that Vexillology Corner is normally lighthearted because flags are interesting and fun. But people, of course, take meaning in them, and sometimes they do so for nefarious purposes. So let's talk about these flags. And let's first start with the flag of Rhodesia. It's green, white, and green with a symbol, I think the Rhodesian bird is uh, in there. When was this flag used and what did it represent? The flag emerged in 1968 when Rhodesia declared its independence under Ian Smith, the breakaway from the, the British rule, and they created this flag of green, white, green, uh, some say that they wanted to just be green, white, green, but found that was the flag of Nigeria. So they placed the country's coat of arms in the center. The coat of arms not only has the soapstone bird, which is on the current flag of the now Zimbabwe, but it also has the entire coat of arms with the the animals as the supporters and the shield and, and all the rest. It's a big symbol in the middle of the flag. Yeah, and there's even a lion, an English lion, as part, as sort of a sub-part of the coat of arms. Correct. Yeah. And so, was this ever a country, the flag of a recognized country? Uh, well, depending on what you mean recognized, yeah. because the, the country of Rhodesia had a uh, checkered history um, under Ian Smith, where they did not embrace the majority black population, but insisted on a, a form of uh, very repressive minority rule, and that made Rhodesia a pariah nation in that era. Is there anything in the flag that expresses that? I don't think so. I think the the flag is really a, a throwback to uh, the the history of the country as a British subject, but creating non-British symbolism in the vertical stripes and the green and white as opposed to red, white, and blue, which is traditionally British. Let's talk about the other flag. This is the flag that South Africa used for uh, many, many years up until apartheid ended, actually. Yes, the Union of South Africa and the Republic of South Africa used this flag starting in 1928 and until 1994 when the regime changed. And the flag is a compilation of several flags. The overall design is a horizontal tri-bar of orange over white over blue, which is in effect the ancient flag of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. So it's the Dutch flag representing the Dutch who settled in South Africa. And then placed in the center of the flag is a combination of three flags, uh, the flags of uh, Great Britain, uh, the Orange Free State, and Transvaal all components of what then was the modern South Africa. And the flags are arranged in an, in an interesting uh, series. The, the Transvaal flag is on the right, the British flag is on the left, and the Orange Free State flag is hanging downward. Uh, ironically, the, because the British flag is on the left, it's in effect flying backwards. Yeah. It's flying as if the Orange Free State flag were the flagpole, and the flag were flying off to the left. So to some, it looks like the flag is upside down, for those who keep track of the Union Jack. And I think this was a flag that actually 
wound up offending a lot of people, uh, not only the oppressed black or brown people of South Africa, but a lot of Boers say this is, you know, the inclusion of the British flag at the time made it not a Boer flag. And then you had another interesting aspect of this flag, which is that it is a flag of four flags. And each of those four flags are also comprised or composed of different flags, like the the flag of the UK is three different flags, right? Yes, you could you could make an argument for flags within flags within flags. Yeah. Now, to your knowledge, was this? I mean, this obviously is a symbol of racists because they want to propagate the idea of apartheid. But have you seen this? Uh, I know you're not a hate crime specialist or anything like that, but has this become a symbol for something other than a country? All I know is that often flags that have been replaced continue to be used by those who yearn for or support the ideologies the flags had represented. For example, the Confederate flag, or the old flag of the state of Georgia, or South Africa. And with especially a couple of those, and let's throw in the Nazi flag, there's an immediate gut reaction that even non-experts would say, oh, I know what you mean. But if you were to see either the Rhodesian flag we were talking about or the South African flag, would people who were versed in these things know that it carried you know, a special message? I think it depends, because uh, in some ways, because of the success of the successor flags and the successor regimes, the modern South Africa flag is a compelling design. It was designed by Fred Brownell, who's the former Civic Herald of South Africa, and it combines the colors of the former flag and the colors of the African National Congress. And it is such a successful flag that it has basically left the old one in the dust. And the old one, I think, to most people, looks like uh, a a historical anomaly, yeah. an artifact. But it may well be true that some people use it to represent the ideologies that they embrace that that flag had represented. Yeah, ideologies that are themselves an artifact. For some. Yeah, and if you look at the South African current flag, which has the black, gold, and red, and has uh, green, and it's a pretty interesting-looking flag. I don't know of any other flag that's designed like that. It is an interesting flag, and, and Fred Brownell had sketched it on the program of a International Flag Studies Congress when we was, he was sitting through a very boring lecture. Mm -hmm. And a couple of years later, when he was in charge of the flag contest in South Africa and had helped bring the submissions down to, I think, six for the leaders to choose from, the leaders said, we don't like any of these six finalists. Don't you have anything else? And he brought out the design that he had sketched on the program, and that became, uh, with some tweaks, the flag that South Africa has now embraced. And yes, it has six colors, which is unusual for a flag. It's unusual to say that's a good flag design, because that is a lot of colors, but the colors have meaning. The red, white, and blue coming from the British and the Dutch heritage, and the black, yellow, and green from the African National Congress. And it forms a, a Y on its side where the, the branches of the Y hit the upper left and upper uh, and lower left sides of the flag and come together into a, a line that goes out to the fly end of the flag. It shows uh, groups coming together into the future. It's a very compelling design. Right. Whereas its predecessor flag, the flag of South Africa, was a jumble of constituencies thrust together without too much thought. Uh, they may have put a lot of thought into it, but it represents the challenge 
of trying to put something on a flag for everyone. And that's something actually the country of Fiji is dealing with right now. Does it put something on the flag for everyone, or does it have the flag represent everyone? One thing for everybody, as opposed to a single item for each person on the flag creating a jumble. Well, thank you, Ted Kay, for this uh, not happy, but you know what? Still informative edition of Vexillology Corner. Flags create emotions, positive and negative, and we're seeing that play out right now. Well said. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Mike. There are a couple of phrases that have modifiers, qualifiers, that really make me wonder. Electric guitar, aren't they all? I mean, even the acoustic guitars that you see, they're plugged in somewhere. Day baseball, all baseballs played during some part of the day. Power windows, one day we will no longer have to say power windows in a car because the hand crank won't even be an option. Well, in this category, maybe we could start to consider behavioral economics. Wait, shouldn't all economics, how people think and spend about money, shouldn't that all be based on behavior? No. There was for many, many years a disconnect between economics, which was theoretical, and behavior, which is how people screwed up the theories of economics. Into this maw walks individuals like Richard Thaler. He is the author of The Making of Behavioral Economics, Misbehaving, He is a professor of behavioral science and economics at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Hello, Richard Thaler. How are you? Hello, Mike. I'm good. In your book, there's much about fallacies and much about different kinds of effects. But can we talk about an economic theory that really is beautiful, that's pristine? You got to give it up to the theory and just so seldom works in the real world because of human complication. You know, look, let's go right to the heart of it. The heart of the theory is that people optimize. Yeah. So they pick the best possible thing. Now, you know, how many times a day do you violate that? Do you eat the right breakfast in the morning? Do you get up an hour earlier and work out before you eat breakfast? How much time do you waste during the day Do you save the right amount for retirement? I mean, the number of ways we screw things up. And if we look around, uh, we see Americans, an astonishing number are obese. Many have nothing saved for retirement. Those who do invest have a nasty habit of buying high and selling low. Mm Mm-hmm. It's hard to find a lot of evidence of that optimizing going on. And, you know, those are, if you ask the people, if you ask obese people, if you ask people who didn't wake up, or if you ask people without a savings account, you know, I bet you a large majority would say, yeah, I know I should do it. Some of the fascinating things, though, in your book are effects where people wouldn't even say that. Like, let's say I have, you write about this, I have tickets, to, a hot ticket to a game. And so, and you know, it's being scalped. It's on the secondary market for a thousand bucks. And I say, I, 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 I'm, I'm really excited to go to this playoff game. I wouldn't sell it even though it's going for a thousand bucks. So then you turn around and say, oh, so you would buy it for a thousand bucks? And you say, no way, that's way too high. Th- th- that's an example of a person absolutely defending their behavior and their behavior being entirely unoptimized and irrational. Right. And it's, in fact, it's quite hard to convince people. Yes. <laughs> if, if I say, so you understand that it's costing you $1,000 to go to that game. They say, what are you talking about? My brother-in-law gave me the ticket. It doesn't cost me anything. 
So yeah, but you could sell it for a thousand dollars. What does that have to do with it? Didn't cost me anything. Now, of course, it costs them exactly what they could have gotten for that ticket. Uh, but you're right. It, it oftentimes the theory is so wrong at predicting behavior that even if you explain it to people, they'll think you're nuts. But what you do, helpfully, is you give it a name, you write lucidly about it. And the name for that particular one, that's the endowment effect, when you have the bird, the Larry Bird ticket in the hand effect? What we have, uh, we don't like to give up, though we wouldn't pay that much to get it. I mean, anybody can do an easy test of that by just looking through their closet and asking how much of that stuff they would be willing to pay to get back if they lost it. Yeah. But, you know, there it is, lying there. Okay, how much does that affect government policy and the citizens' unwillingness to opt for the new better thing when it is rational, but it just seems like different from the bird you have in the hand? Well, there's certainly a lot of inertia. A lot of, a lot of what we do is just done because that's the way we always do it. Uh, you know, writing a book... Uh, gets you to learn a lot about the publishing business. And we could do a whole show about the mysterious ways of the publishing business. For example, authors are not permitted to talk to cover designers. Mm -hmm. What's that about? Well, some author must have said something very rude to some cover designer somewhere, <laughs> and now it's just forbidden for uh, authors to talk to cover designers. I think it was uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald who said, a couple of eyes? Who's going to read a book with a couple of eyes on it? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, so we have all kinds of rules. You know, I know you're a big sports fan, yeah. and, you know, we see that all the time in sports. David Romer wrote a famous paper well, almost 20 years ago, showing that football teams should go for it more often on fourth down. That analysis has been replicated with lots and lots of much better data than he had, and it's highly robust. And the frequency of going for it on fourth down has changed not one bit. Nope. Because the risk aversion, the loss aversion, you write about this in companies that if you are partly or fairly responsible for a gain of, I don't know, 20% of the company, you might be rewarded a little. If you're responsible for a loss, the company losing 20%, you'll probably get fired. And that's right. how coaches think. Sometimes we blame it on the coaches because we think that the coach is going to get fired if he mm -hmm. does the smart thing. But most of the time, we should blame it on the owner. Because the owner hasn't convinced the coach that actually you're going to get fired for doing the wrong thing. Belichick has been highly successful for the Patriots for many years, I think, because he has an owner that is willing to back him even if he does unconventional things. So what have been some simple, low-hanging fruit, probably wouldn't cost that much, probably not politically, you wouldn't think they'd be politically controversial, that maybe in American politics have been resistant to nudging? Here's the no-brainer of all times. It's an idea from my colleague, Austin Goolsby. Why not send people who have no deductions as of the simplest tax return form 
send them a tax return that is already filled out. Yeah. And say, here's your tax return. Sign it if you want. If you think you have something to add, fine. You know, go online, click here, you're done. In one of the Scandinavian countries, you can file your tax return by text message. You can guess what industry is opposed to this. <laughs> what industry H&R blocked it, you're saying? Uh, nice line. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could save millions of taxpayers, millions of hours and millions of dollars by doing this. Misbehaving, the making of behavioral economics is the name of the book. And we, we have been speaking with Richard Thaler, the author of the book. Thank you so much, Professor Thaler. Thank you. It was great fun. And now the spiel. Grow for it. Jeb! Exclamation! Jeb! In fact, the typeface of that piece of punctuation in the Jeb Bush 2016 campaign logo is so buoyant, so bubbly, it should get its own word. Jebsclamation. So Jeb, Jebsclamation Bush, in announcing he would run, hung a quantifiable figure on his candidacy. Four. Now, four is the number of terms a Bush will have held office if Jebsclamation is elected. But four is also the growth rate he thinks we can achieve. There's not a reason in the world why we cannot grow at a rate of 4% a year. And that will be my goal as president. Now, I have to tell you, I think that this is brilliant, implausible, bordering on the impossible, but smart. Well, what we want out of politicians, or so we tell pollsters, is specificity. Where's the detail? Of course, if they get too detailed, then we want the vision thing, or we call them wonks. But anyway, we say we like real numbers. We like a real plan. And this, my friends, is a real plan. Or at least, it seems like a real plan. Or at least, it's a good counter-argument for every speech that Hillary Clinton is going to give. Sure, sure, she says she wants to help everyday Americans. Those are just words. This is a number. And it's not just any old number. It doesn't end in a zero. It doesn't end in a five. This number is four. So that's a really good specific number. Is it possible? No. Most economists say no. The fact is that over the last 40 years, the American economy has grown at an average of 2.8% per year. And as America gets older, the Congressional Budget Office says growth is going to be around 2.2% a year. So 4% annual growth? It has happened in the past, not often, 23 out of 63 years, never happened eight years in a row, but why not say it? Sounds good. Also gives you something to focus on. Another interesting note, if the economy continues to grow under the Obama administration, the lowest average annualized growth rates since the Second World War will be during presidential administrations where the president was named Bush. Not that presidents can actually do a lot about macroeconomic trends. Mostly, presidents get lucky or unlucky. But the thing about Jeb Bush's four is that it is a smart number. I will also say this. It is possibly a way of changing Jeb Bush's party's own mind on immigration. See, right now, like I said, we're at two point something percent growth. Three quarters of our growth is due to productivity gain. But a quarter of growth is just increased participation in the workforce. See, if you have more people producing, growth overall goes up. It doesn't mean the individual benefits. It doesn't say anything about the per capita numbers. But yeah, 
growth goes up. And the easiest way to goose growth is just to add more people in the workforce, as in more immigration. More immigration helped Jeb Bush achieve great growth rates when he was the governor of the burgeoning state of Florida. And there's another reason why 4% growth is smart as a slogan, as a goal, as something you say you think can really happen, because it speaks to hope. And the old cliche is also the old true cliche. We want optimism out of our presidents. So when Bush says, yes, we can, even though most learned economists say, no, we, we actually can't. Well, those who are saying nay, they're, they're kind of like naysayers. Do you think the average American, the everyday American, even knows that 4% growth is an aspiration? Do you think they know what the growth rate is? So I think it will play simply as one candidate saying, yeah, we can do it. And the opposition putting forth a bunch of pasty-faced academics who lack any sort of flouncy, buoyant punctuation saying, uh, my slide rule begs to differ. Republicans, Democrats too, but on the national scale, Republicans have recently taken to fudging numbers. They tell us they're going to achieve solid economic footing by stopping waste, fraud, and abuse, by eliminating all those arts grants to lesbian square dancing collectives. That's like 10% of the economy, I guess. And every tax cut will automatically generate the exact magical amount of revenue necessary to balance the budget. But since all those numbers are numbers that can be checked, they can also be dismantled, like when Bill Clinton cut into Paul Ryan at the Democratic National Convention in 2012. You got to get one thing. It takes some brass to attack a guy for doing what you did. But a goal, which definitionally is about the future, can't be disproved. Can it be poo-pooed? Sure. But that just leaves your side spewing poo. A party of poo spewers. Who wants that? The punctuations associated with poo-pooing, it's a squirrely little question mark. It's no piece of jebsclamation. It doesn't stake a claim. It raises a question. The question being, Jebs for four, what are you for? That's it for today's show. Producer Andrea Salenzi says there's no reason why TV can't be 40% zombie show by 2018. Managing producer Joel Meyer has a goal by 2022 of half of all Americans believing the name of the show was Urkel, not Family Matters. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, says that if we try and band together, K can replace OK in all texts by 2030. Follow us on iTunes. And when you're there, I encourage you to leave a review. We cherish the reviews. I never miss an iTunes review, especially the ASMR sufferers, the adherents who hate us because they think we called bullshit on the entire phenomenon. But here's the thing. I've got a message to you a ASMRs. I want to get you back into the flock. And here goes, it's OK. We can still do parts of the show where we all agree that we get a lot out of it. Okay, I'm going to touch a blanket now. The gist, here's our goal. In the 70s, it was in sight. 80% of all studio releases starring Gene Hackman. We can still get there, people. Let's work on it together. Thanks for listening. And now here's another, in fact, the latest addition to the Panoply Network. 
Hello, Panoply podcast listeners. I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And I'm Elaine Sheldon. And we're the hosts of Panoply's new show, She Does. Audio documentaries that are part biography, part conversation, and all about women in media. Every other week, we ask women writers, filmmakers, directors, photographers, and technologists what makes them tick, their process, their motivations. We dig back into their past to have an open and intimate conversation. We started this show back in January and have since featured a pretty unbelievable cast of women, including Deborah Granick, the Academy Award-nominated director of Winter's Bone, and Anna Sale, the voice of WNYC's popular show, Death, Sex, and Money. Type She Does into iTunes and get into these stories. We have over a dozen episodes just waiting to be heard. But warning, She Does has been known to cause binge listening. Find us online at shedoespodcast.com and on Twitter at shedoespodcast.